Lesson 10 for December 1 through to 7, Unity and Broken Relationships, Sabbath afternoon, December 1. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again, we thank you for it, and we thank you for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the stories that we've been reading these past few weeks about how that story of the salvation that Jesus offers was taken to the world. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us this week as we study this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And let's read that again. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. As we've seen, even after Pentecost, the relationship between believers was at times strained. The New Testament records repeated examples of the way that church leaders and individual members dealt with such challenges. These principles are extremely valuable for the church today. They reveal the positive results that can come when we use biblical principles to deal with conflicts and preserve our oneness in Christ. In this week's lesson, we will focus on restoring relationships and how our human relationships impact our oneness in Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit involves bringing people closer to God and to one another. It includes breaking down the barriers in our relationships with God and breaking down barriers in our relationships with one another. In short, the greatest demonstration of the power of the gospel is not necessarily what the church says, but how the church lives. John 13 verse 35 reads, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Without this love, all our talk about church unity will come to nothing. Sunday, December 2. Restored Friendship Paul and Barnabas worked together in witnessing for Jesus, but they had a disagreement over whether they could trust one as fearful as John Mark. Let's read about that in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 39. Then, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. 
The potential dangers of preaching the gospel had caused John Mark at one point to desert Paul and Barnabas and return home, as we read in Acts 13.13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 170, This desertion caused Paul to judge Mark unfavourably and even severely for a time. Barnabas, on the other hand, was inclined to excuse him because of his inexperience. He felt anxious that Mark should not abandon the ministry, for he saw in him qualifications that would fit him to be a useful worker for Christ. End of quote. Although God used all these men, the issues between them needed resolution. The apostle who preached grace needed to extend grace to a young preacher who had disappointed him. The apostle of forgiveness needed to forgive. John Mark grew in the affirming mentorship of Barnabas, as we already read in Acts 15.39, and eventually Paul's heart was apparently touched by the changes. Question. How do Paul's letters to Timothy and the church at Colossus reveal his renewed relationship with John Mark and a new confidence in this young preacher? Colossians 4 verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Although details of Paul's reconciliation with John Mark may be sketchy, the biblical record is clear. John Mark became one of the Apostles' trusted companions. Paul highly recommended John Mark as a fellow worker to the church at Colossae. At the end of Paul's life, he strongly encouraged Timothy to bring John Mark with him to Rome because he was useful to me for ministry. We read that in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11. Paul's ministry was enriched by the young preacher whom he obviously had forgiven. The barrier between them had been broken down, and they were able to work together in the cause of the gospel. Whatever the issues between them, and however justified Paul might have believed himself to be in regard to his earlier attitude toward John Mark, it was all behind him now. And so to finish the day, how can we learn to forgive those who have hurt or disappointed us? At the same time, why does forgiveness not always include a complete restoration of a previous relationship? Why does it not always need to? Monday, December 3, from Slave to Son While he was imprisoned in Rome, Paul met a runaway slave named Onesimus, who had fled from Colossae to Rome. 
Paul realised that he personally knew Onesimus' master. The epistle to Philemon is Paul's personal appeal to his friend regarding a restored relationship with the runaway slave. Relationships mattered to Paul. The Apostle knew that fractured relationships are detrimental to spiritual growth and to church unity. Philemon was a church leader in Colossae. If he harboured bitterness towards Onesimus, it would colour his Christian witness and the witness of the church to the non-believing community. Question. Read Philemon, which only has one chapter, verses 1 through to 15. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow labourer, to the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow labourers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. At first glance, it is somewhat surprising that Paul did not speak more forcefully against the evils of slavery. But Paul's strategy was far more effective. The gospel ideally breaks down all class distinctions. As we read in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
and Colossians 3:10 and 11, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. The apostle sent Onesimus back to Philemon, not as a slave, but as his son in Jesus, and as Philemon's beloved brother in the Lord, as we read in verse 16. Paul knew that runaway slaves had a bleak future. They could be apprehended at any time. They were doomed to a life of destitution and poverty. But now, as Philemon's brother in Christ and willing worker, Onesimus could have a better future. His food, lodging and job could be made secure under Philemon. The restoration of a broken relationship could make a dramatic difference in his life. He became a faithful and beloved brother, a co-labourer in the gospel with Paul, as we read in Colossians 4.9, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Paul was so fervent, so adamant in his desire for reconciliation between them, that he was willing to pay out of his own pocket any financial issues that might have arisen from what happened between the two believers in Jesus. And so, to finish today, drawing from the principles of the gospel as seen here, what can you take away that can help you deal with whatever stresses and strains, even fractures, you have in relationships with others? How can these principles prevent a breakdown in the unity of your local church? Tuesday, December 4. Spiritual Gifts for Unity Question. As we saw in an earlier lesson, the church at Corinth had deep problems. What principles does Paul outline in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 11, chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, and 2 Corinthians 10, 12 to 15, for healing and restoration, which is so vital to church unity? Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus? And First Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, 
I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one who says that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And Second Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overexerting ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other man's labours, but having hope that, as your faith has increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. In these passages, the Apostle outlines critical principles for church unity. He points out that Jesus uses different workers to accomplish different ministries in his church, even though each one is labouring together for the building up of God's kingdom, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3.9. God calls us to to cooperation, not competition. Each believer is gifted by God to cooperate in ministering to the body of Christ and serving the community, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12.11. There are no greater or lesser gifts. All are necessary in Christ's church, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 18 to 23. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honourable, on those we bestow greater honour, and our unrepresentable parts have greater modesty. Our God-given gifts are not for selfish display, and they are given by the Holy Spirit for service in the spreading of the gospel. All comparisons with others are unwise, because they will make us feel either discouraged or arrogant. If we think that others are far superior to us, we will feel despondent when we compare ourselves to them, and easily can get discouraged in whatever ministry we are in. On the other hand, 
If we think our labours for Christ are more effective than as the work of others, we will feel proud, which is the last sentiment any Christian should be harbouring. Both attitudes cripple our effectiveness for Christ and the fellowship we have with one another. As we labour within the sphere of influence that Christ has given us, we will find joy and contentment in our witness for Christ. Our labours will complement the efforts of other members and the Church of Christ will make giant strides for the Kingdom. So to finish today, can you think of someone whose gifts in ministry have made you jealous? Not hard, is it? At the same time, how often have you felt proud of your gifts in contrast to those of others? The point is, that Paul's concerns are an ever-present reality in fallen human beings. Regardless of the side on which we fall, how can we learn the unselfish attitudes that are necessary in order to maintain our oneness in Christ? Wednesday, December 5. Forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Does forgiveness justify the behaviour of someone who has horribly wronged us? Is forgiveness dependent on the offender's repentance? What if the one with whom I am upset does not deserve my forgiveness? Question. How do the following passages help us to understand the biblical nature of forgiveness? First of all, Romans 5, verses 8 through to 11. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And Luke 23, verses 31 to 34. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And, when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Second Corinthians 4, verses 20 and 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Ephesians 4 verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Christ took the initiative in reconciling us to himself. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance, it said in Romans 2 verse 4. 
In Christ, we were reconciled to God while we were yet sinners. Our repentance and confession do not create reconciliation. Christ's death on the cross did. Our part is to accept what was done for us. It is true that we cannot receive the blessings of forgiveness until we confess our sins. This does not mean that our confession creates forgiveness in God's heart. Forgiveness was in his heart all the time. Confession instead enables us to receive it, as it says in 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is vitally important, not because it changes God's will toward us, but because it changes our attitude toward him. When we yield to the Holy Spirit's convicting power to repent and confess our sin, we are changed. Forgiveness also is crucial for our own spiritual well-being. A failure to forgive someone who has wronged us, even if they do not deserve forgiveness, can hurt us more than it hurts them. If an individual has wronged you and the pain festers inside because you failed to forgive, you are allowing them to hurt you even more. Such feeling and hurt often are the cause of divisions and tensions in the church. Unresolved hurt between church members hurts the unity of the body of Christ. Forgiveness is releasing another from our condemnation because Christ has released us from his condemnation. It does not justify another's behaviour toward us. We can be reconciled to someone who has wronged us because Christ reconciled us to himself when we wronged him. We can forgive because we are forgiven. We can love because we are loved. Forgiveness is a choice. We can choose to forgive in spite of the other person's actions or attitudes. This is the true spirit of Jesus. And so to finish the day, how can focusing on the forgiveness we have in Christ help us learn to forgive others? Why is this forgiveness such an essential aspect of our Christian experience? Thursday, December 6, Restoration and Unity Question, read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through to 17. What three steps does Jesus give us to help us to resolve conflicts when we are wronged by another church member? How are we to apply these words in our contemporary situations? Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. 
Jesus' desire in giving the counsel of Matthew 18 is to keep interpersonal conflict within the church in as small a group as possible. His intent is that the two people involved solve the problem themselves. This is why Jesus declares in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. As the number of people involved in a conflict between two individuals increases, the more contention can be created, and the more it can affect the fellowship of other believers. People take sides, and battle lines are drawn. But when Christians attempt to settle their differences privately, and in the spirit of Christian love and mutual understanding, a climate of reconciliation is created. The atmosphere is right for the Holy Spirit to work with them as they strive to resolve their differences. Sometimes personal appeals for conflict resolution are ineffective. In these instances, Jesus invites us to take one or two brothers with us. This second step in the reconciliation process always must follow the first step. The purpose is to bring people together, not drive them further apart. The one or two who join the offending party are not coming to prove his or her point or to join in blaming the other individual. They come in Christian love and compassion as counsellors and prayer partners in order to participate in the process of bringing two estranged people together. There are occasions when all attempts to solve the problem do not work. In this case, Jesus instructs us to bring the issue before the church. He certainly is not talking about interrupting the Sabbath morning worship service with an issue of personal conflict. The appropriate place to bring the issue, if the first two steps have not helped to reconcile the two parties, is the church board. Again, Christ's purpose is reconciliation. It is not to blame one party and exonerate the other. Ellen White writes in Gospel Workers, page 499, do not suffer resentment to ripen into malice. Do not allow the wound to fester and break out in poisoned words, which taint the minds of those who hear. Do not allow bitter thoughts to continue to fill your mind and his. Go to your brother, and in humility and sincerity, talk with him about the matter. Friday, December 7. Ellen White writes in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 175, When the labourers have an abiding Christ in their own souls, when all selfishness is dead, when there is no rivalry, no strife for the supremacy, when oneness exists, when they sanctify themselves so that love for one another is seen and felt, then the showers of the grace of the Holy Spirit will just as surely come upon them as that God's promise will never fail in one jot or tittle. End of quote. And from Last Day Events, page 190. If we stand in the great day of the Lord with Christ as our refuge, our high tower, we must put away all envy, all strife for the supremacy, 
we must utterly destroy the roots of these unholy things, that they may not again spring up into life. We must place ourselves wholly on the side of the Lord. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Read Colossians three, twelve to 17 And that reads, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Discuss the Christian qualities the Apostle Paul encourages the church at Colossae to seek. Why are these qualities the basis for all conflict resolution? How do they guide us in carrying out the principles that Jesus gives us in Matthew eighteen fifteen to 18 that we read and discussed earlier in the week? 2. Look again at Colossians three twelve to 17 and the teachings found in these verses. Why are these things so utterly essential for the unity of the church? 3. If we look at our church, that is, the Seventh-day Adventist church as a whole, what is the greatest thing holding us back from the kind of unity that will be needed in order to reach the world? Is it our teachings and doctrines? Of course not. These are the very things that God has given us to proclaim to the world. Maybe the problem exists solely in us, in our interpersonal relationships, our petty jealousies, our bickering, our selfishness, our desire for supremacy, and a whole host of other things. Why must you plead for the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the changes that have to occur in you before we see unity in the whole church? And so to summarise this week's lesson, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about healing and transformation, and when these come, they cannot help impacting our relationship with others. The Bible gives us powerful principles and examples of how we can have good and close relationships with others, even in a world of sin. Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Our Church is Schools and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Seventh day Adventist education is the path to people's hearts in Bangladesh, church leaders said. Our church in Bangladesh is basically schools, said Milton Das, communication director for the Bangladesh Union Mission. Education is the strongest medium to reach the people of Bangladesh. Where there is a church, there is a school. 
That first mission station, which paved the way for Adventist education to blossom in the country, was founded in 1906 by Lal Gopal Mukherjee and his wife, U.S. teacher Grace Kellogg, in then East Bengal. Today, Adventist schools are thriving centres of influence across this country of 162 million people, with some 10,000 students attending 174 village schools, 10 city schools and 9 boarding schools. About 60-70% to 70% of the students are non-Adventist, and the figure rises to 99% in city schools, such as the Dhaka Adventist Pre-Seminary School, which teaches 1,535 students in the country's capital. Adventist education is in high demand, with parents from various faiths wanting their children to learn Christian values, Das says. There are many more children waiting to go to school, said Das, who also oversees Bangladesh Children's Sponsorship Services, a department of the Bangladesh Union Mission that covers the tuition cost of 3,000 underprivileged children a year through partnerships with the General Conference, Adventist Supporting Ministry Asian Aid and the Adventist Development and Relief Agency, ADRA. Das himself received 16 years of Adventist education after an Australian woman paid his monthly tuition costs through Asian aid. He said 90% of local church leaders were sponsored as children. Shovi Rani Bayan, aged 76, a retired schoolteacher, told of how she saw Adventist education change the lives of the Santilli people living near Bangladesh's border with Myanmar. She said the people wore nothing more than scant cloths to cover their genitals and ate all living creatures, including snails, rats, cats and dogs, when she first arrived in the area with her husband, evangelist Narottam Bayan, in the early 1960s. The adults had no desire to live differently, but then we opened a church school, Bayan said. Many of those children are now church workers, pastors and evangelists. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.